Again, if you remember the last time we were together, we zeroed in on that seventh verse. You may or may not recall from our preview of the first six verses that verses 3 through 12 actually constitute one complete sentence in the original language. Uh, The translators of our modern versions have been very kind for us in breaking up that sentence into smaller sentences so that we might gain uh, clearer understanding and we can understand this uh, a little bit better. But the original giving of this passage by the Holy Spirit to Peter was one full thought in one sentence from verse 3 all the way down to verse 12. And so in fairness to verses 8 and 9, which we will be looking at this afternoon, uh, we want to recapture some of what we discussed in the past in those first six verses. So let's do that very, very quickly just to kind of get our minds kind of zeroed in on where we are. Some of you may have gone to the mall and you're trying to find a certain store and you'll come across a map on the wall and then you'll see these words, you are here. So you have the whole scene, but you're zeroing in on one spot. But in order to find out where you need to go, you need to know where you are to start with. So that's what we want to do. We just kind of want to put ourselves down in the text and find out the the flow of thought of Peter by the time he gets to verses 8 and 9. The first couple of verses we know are introductory remarks. Peter identifies himself as the sender. These dispersed Jewish believers are the recipients. And then he writes his greeting in verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Then you discover that the body of the letter begins with verse 3. And we learned that the purpose of writing this letter is to draw the attention of these suffering saints away from their worldly concerns and onto the God of their salvation. And so you see in verses 3 and 4, the architect by whom our salvation was designed. This is God the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We also see the source from which this salvation flows. It is according to His great mercy. And just by way of passing, may we never, ever forget that. Don't let those words just kind of run across your eyeballs and then we just, we forget it. It is according to His great mercy that we enjoy this. Nothing we've deserved. God did not look upon you and say, you're just a little bit better than the average guy. You're just a little bit sweeter than the average lady. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins, and if it were not for God's great mercy, we would have no salvation. So the source from which our salvation flows is according to His great mercy. The path by which our salvation is obtained, it it says that He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. God is the one who has done that. We did not. He caused that. And then finally, the features by which our salvation is described. We see that in verse 3. And then in verse 4, it's called a living hope. And then it's called an imperishable inheritance. So here Peter begins in verses 3 and 4, drawing their attention to the God of their salvation and describing all of these characteristics of this wonderful salvation. And then he says in verse 5 that we are being guarded for that salvation in the, that will come in the last time. And you can certainly understand why he would say that because here we are, we see that we have this wonderful salvation. But just look at my life. It's like I'm on a, I'm a ship that's going from shore to shore and out on the storm and it's like if I can just get there with a sail left. 
because I've been battered so badly. That's the guardedness of God's work in our salvation. It is his power that preserves us. Verse 5, it is by God's power that we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That brought us to verse 6, and we see this amazing thing about these wonderful people who are being guarded for this salvation that's been so wonderfully described, and it is that in this they rejoice. No matter the circumstances, they rejoice in this. We're going to talk a little bit bit more about that later on this afternoon. Then he says the first mention of trials is in verse 6, though now for a little time, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And we learned about the necessity of trials. We talked a little bit about that. And then the last time we were together, verse 7, we gave our attention to these verses. It says in verse 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, he has told them that the reception of this glorious salvation that has been architected by God and has been drawn from the source of his mercy which you have been guarded for you obtain that by faith and the tested genuineness of your faith is what's important it's not that your life is going great and everything's wonderful we trust God and all is good and all is well but what happens when trials come faith is tested and so we find out whether it's a real test, a real faith, or if it is a false faith. And so the tested genuineness of their faith is what we looked about last time we were together. We saw the superior value of faith and the usefulness of trials in relation to that faith. This afternoon we're, bringing to, we're coming to verses 8 and 9. So this is the flow of thought as he has discussed these various descriptions of this salvation. They're being guarded for their salvation and they go through various trials and testings and mishaps and difficulties to show the genuineness of that faith. And then he says in verses 8 and 9, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. What a comment, what a statement. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's a description of this church that loves Jesus. The you here in verse 8, though you have not seen him, that you is in the plural. This is a reference to a community. This is not an individual. You will search the scriptures in vain to find anything in the scriptures that describes a New Testament believer as just a lone wolf believer apart from the community, apart from the society of an assembly. Everything in the scripture, everything you read is within the context of a local assembly. It's always within the context of a local church. The individual who says, well, I can love God, and, but I just not really, just don't care much for church, but I love Jesus, and I'm just... That person has deceived himself and built a God for himself that is after his own image so that he can pick and choose what he wants and what he does not want rather than being part of a group of people making up a local assembly as the body of Christ. 
So this is not an individual. This is a community. It's not a reference to a lone believer separated from everyone else. It is addressed to a community. All of you, though you have not seen him, you love him. And it is a very peculiar and strange community because he says that they love him and they believe in him, but they've never seen him. These people stake their whole earthly and eternal existence, their eternal security on an individual that they have never seen. It's unlikely that any of the readers of these these general epistles of Peter had ever seen Christ. Possibly some of them had. But Peter is addressing the vast majority of these people who in all likelihood had never ever laid eyes on Christ. They love him. They believe in him, though they have never seen him. It would be hard not to catch the uh, contrast being made between verse 8 and verse 7. In verse 8, he describes the fact that they had never seen him. But you go back to verse 7. It says, So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested with fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Now highlight these words at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It may be that they have not seen him. It's not ever going to be that they will never see him. That, that's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the same word as the last book of our Bibles. That's that apocalypsis, that unveiling, that manifestation, that revelation of Jesus Christ, and they will see him. But they have not seen him now. So he contrasts that in verse 8 with verse 7. Peter knew Jesus, though, didn't he? This wasn't the case with Peter. Peter was very intimately acquainted with Christ. He had seen him. And so you can almost sense a a kind of a tender pity that Paul may have here, or Peter may have here for these readers. And he commends them for their steadfast faith. He had seen Christ. He had walked with Christ. He had seen the risen Christ. They had not. They had not. He was the one who saw him and preached him Fervently. In fact, let me let you look at a couple of verses on this. We could, we could spend a lot of time on this. We won't. But let me ask you to turn to just two passages. Um, one in, uh, and they're both in Acts. So if you'll turn to book Acts chapter 4. I'm just showing you the contrast between Peter, who has actually seen Christ, and his commendation of these people who had not seen Christ. And there at Acts 4, and uh, if you would please, verse 20. Acts 4 and verse 20. Well, let's pick up verse 19. It says, But Peter and John answered them. We all know what's going on here. Uh, there had been this a lame man that Peter and John had healed, and they had been put in prison for this. They had been let out and told not to preach in this name, but Peter is not going to listen to that. He says, We will still preach in this name. You get to verse 19. Peter and John answered them because they said, Don't do this. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And if you would, please, one other one, Acts chapter 10, and just look at verses 39 and 40. Acts 10, 39 and 40. Acts 
Of course, Peter is now at the house of Cornelius. And you get to verse 39. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So what a contrast. Here is Jesus, here is Peter ministering to these dear saints regarding the life of Jesus, whom they have never seen. And yet he is the one who saw him and was a constant witness, a constant testifier to the things that he had seen and the things that he had heard. And so you can just imagine the tenderness that he might have had for these dear people who had never seen him. Uh, one other passage, if you would, if you'll go back to second to First Peter, we're going to go to Second Peter chapter one. So back over to Peter's words in Second Peter chapter one. Beginning in verse 16, Peter writes, I'm reading from 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were witnesses of his majesty. For we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. So Peter describes here this wonderful situation where he and two of the other disciples were eyewitnesses to the resurrected glory, the transcendent glory of Christ, to people who had never ever laid eyes on him, for the most part, almost all of them, never even seen him, and yet they are blessed, and they are steadfast, and they love him. Because they have seen him, not with the eyes that are physical, but with the eyes of faith. And we'll, we'll, we'll see that if you will look and continue reading here in Second Peter. It says, he says, uh, we ourselves, in verse 18, heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure. What could possibly be more sure than an eyewitness testimony? He says, we have something more sure, and that is this, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So the idea here that he is getting across is that even though these people had never seen him with their physical eyes, they still saw him with eyes of faith gained from the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And by the way, I want you to notice something else in these verses. Three times already, Peter has made mention of faith. If you will look back in verse 5 in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation. Now look at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. And then you get to verse 8. 
though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. That word believe is the same Greek word for faith as pistis, and the, the, the root noun, and they believe, they believe, and here it is again for the third time. We're going to see it a fourth time in a little bit. So the root of all of this is faith. These dear saints had never seen him with their physical eyes, not the Jesus of Nazareth, but they have seen him through faith. Now what we want to do here uh, so far has just been a little bit of introduction. We want to look at verses 8 and 9, and we're going to cover it under two headings. So if this is something helpful for you, let me give this to you. These verses we see two things. The first thing we see is the reality of loving and believing in Jesus. So that's your first point. The reality of loving and and believing in Jesus. The second thing we're going to see is a result of loving and believing in Jesus. So we're going to see the results, and those results are pretty self-explanatory. It is this inexpressible joy that's filled with glory. And we'll uh, continue in this obtaining of that ultimate faith. And may I say this by way of application. These things the reality of our loving and believing in Jesus and the result of that, which is a joy that's inexpressible and the obtaining of our ultimate salvation, those things are the only things that will sustain the believer in the midst of the kinds of difficulties and persecutions being faced by the readers of Paul's letters. They were facing tremendous difficulties and trials and persecutions and hardships. The only thing that will sustain them through all of that is their consistent, present, ongoing love and belief in Christ and the result of that which is an inexpressible joy and then that receiving of their ultimate salvation. So let's look at the first of these. The reality of loving and believing in Jesus Uh, So the first of these is the reality of loving Jesus. Verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him. By the way, you will see this thing expressed negatively and positively in that one verse. In verse 7, Though you have not seen him. I mean, um, excuse me, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And having not, though you don't see him now, you believe in him. So negatively and positively. It's a statement of fact. Uh, This this is an indicative. It's just a statement of fact. Though you have not seen him, you love him. The him, of course, in this verse is our Savior Jesus. And he's mentioned back in verse 7 at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, of course, that is our Savior. It's the reality of those who, who name the name of Christ. They love him. And this is not some imagined Jesus that we see so common in our day. Of a, of a Jesus that is of our own making and our own imagination. This is the Jesus that is identified and described and taught in the sacred scriptures. This is not like the dear lady that sat across the, a seat in an aisle in an airplane with a pastor friend of mine who was speaking with her about her her life and what she believed and what she didn't believe. She said, well, I, and I, and I can't remember her name. I'm just going to say her name was Sarah. I don't know what her name was. I can't remember. But she said, well, I believe in kind of a Sarah-ism. And he said, explain that to me. 
And she said, well, I believe that, you know, what, in my heart I should be good as best I can. And um, one of these days and all the good stuff I'll do here. And, and I'm trying not to do much bad stuff. But eventually the good stuff will outweigh the bad stuff. And I'll, I'm going to be okay in eternity. This, this is a God of our own making. This is, this is a, a little demigod that she has devised. It's, 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 it's a made-up spiritual entity, some kind of uh, a, a cosmic force of some kind. This is not the case with these readers of Peter's letter. They loved Jesus Christ, the one described in Scripture, the one identified in Scripture, the one taught of in Scripture. This is the only Jesus Christ who can truly be the object of our faith that is a saving faith. It is not just that we have some sort of superficial faith. It is faith in a specific object. And the object of our faith is as important, if not more important, than our faith itself. It's not just a faith in something. I'm kind of identifying how old I am. But in my day, when I was a little kid, uh, a little kid, a teenager, that's a little kid to me, uh, we would look at each other and we'd say, Keep the faith. Keep the faith. None of us knew what that meant, but it sounded, it sounded like it was a little bit bigger than what we were living. Keep the faith, something that's bigger than just us as individuals. That is not what Peter is describing here. That is not their faith. The object of their faith is Christ Jesus. The object of their belief is him. So they love him. They love Jesus Christ. And uh, the surrounding circumstance, again, the opening up of verse 8, it's though you have not seen him. This is, this is a negative with, a, with an aorist participle. Literally, you could translate it this way, not having seen. And actually, that's kind of a blessing, isn't it? Because if you go back to John chapter 20, and you read of Christ's words to Thomas... And Thomas believed after touching Jesus. And Jesus said what? He said, it's, it's more blessed. It's a great blessing to those who will believe in him who have never seen him. Describing these dear people here. And so you just have to imagine Peter in that room hearing those words. And now he is addressing these individuals, though you have never seen him. You love him. You love him. They had never seen him. Secondly, not only the reality of their loving him, but also they believe in him. And that's really remarkable. Um, What's being emphasized is that our love for Christ is not dependent upon our seeing him with our physical eyes, but rather it grows out of our faith in him. And that faith is produced by the Holy Spirit through an instrumentality of our regular exposure to his word. So our regular exposure to his word, the Holy Spirit of God uses in strengthening, purifying our faith in him. And we can see him, even though these eyes have never seen him. We see him in his word. Every page of the Bible, we see Christ Jesus. Every page. Every page. So... Um, also note this, it is a present and continuing love. The word love there is present tense. You are continuing to love him. Present ongoing condition, though you have not seen him, you are continually loving him. 
And something we need to recognize is that this is not the unique experience of these believers in this diaspora alone. It is our experience as well. This is the experience of every true believer in Jesus Christ. This really is an indispensable mark of saving faith. You have to believe in the Christ you cannot see with your physical eyes. That is an indispensable mark of true saving faith. Let's look at a couple of passages on this. I don't think I have a hostile audience on this point, but let's just be reminded of these wonderful truths of knowing Christ and our loving in Him. Um, John chapter 8 and verse 42, please. John chapter 8 and verse 42. Let's, uh, let's back up just a little bit here and get some context. Look at verse 39. Jesus is having this discussion with these religious leaders. They answer him, Abraham is our father. <laughs> and Jesus, uh, not having read the book How to Win Friends and Influence People, begins to say this. He says, if you are Abraham's children you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Of course, that's not an unveiled reference to Satan himself, their father. Then they retort with this remark. They said to him... We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Of course, that is a backhand to the virgin birth, where obviously Mary had to have been involved in sexual immorality for her to conceive the son who is standing in front of them at this point. He responds, after they said, we have one father, even God. Jesus said this, if God were your father, you would... You would what? You would love me. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God. I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. If you are a believer, you love Christ. You will love Christ. Uh, Another passage. uh, Right there in John, just go down to John 14. Really, we could multiply these, but we won't. John 14. And let's look at verse 20. Our verse is actually 21. Look at verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And really, we'd read all the way down to verse 24 on that point. Because all of this is wrapped up in that showing our love for Christ in obeying his commandments. And of course, that was the question I was going to ask. How do we show our love for Christ? We say we love him. He is the one we have never seen with these physical eyes, but every time we read our Bibles, we see him out every word of, these, of this book. We see him. We say we love him. How do we show that we love him? We show we love him by demonstrating uh, 
undeniable obedience to all of his commands. Not perfect. We cannot perfectly keep his commandments. But the bent of our lives is a moving towards more obedience to the one we say we love, and that is Christ Jesus. A, a, a loving of him, which means we delight in him, we remain loyal to him, we desire greatly to please him. We are delighted in him. We want to be with him. We want to meet with him. We find great joy in that place of his special presence. We love him. We remain loyal to him. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot have competing loyalties. Jesus Christ comes first in the affections of those who love him. First in everything. Even if it's at great cost. We show we love him in obedience. And then we desire greatly to please Him. We want to do those things that please Him. His commandments, they're not a burden. They're a delight. I, I am amazed at people who say, well, you know, I just, I just don't like this idea of Jesus com- having commandments in the New Testament. They're just, we're just supposed to serve Him because we love Him. Well, sure. Sure we serve Him because we love Him. But He has commands. He has laws. He has regulations. And we want those, don't we? We want those. We want to know what they are. Why do we want to know what they are? Because they please him. And what do we want to do? We want to please him. Think, husbands and wives, think of, can I give a silly illustration on that? Don't you want to know what pleases your spouse? You want to know that. You don't, you don't want to give your spouse something that, really? You, you want to know what they want. And so when we come into God's presence... Especially in worship, you know, we consider, we talk about the regulative principle of worship. We want to know what God wants. Because we don't want to bring him things that he does not want, that he has not commanded. So we seek his word, find his commands, what has he asked us to bring? And that's what we bring. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. What he commands. And this is how we demonstrate our love to him. Though we have not seen him, we love him. That's the reality of loving Jesus in verse 8. There's another reality here, and that is the reality of believing in him. It says, the reality of believing in him, verse 8 of 1 Peter 1, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. I love that little adverb, though you do not now see him, uh, which implies what? Yeah. One of these days, one of these days we'll see him. And I, I don't know what that appearance will be like, but I just know that we will know him as our shepherd when we see him. Just as we saw earlier in verse, uh, verse 8, the object of their love is Jesus. Here we see that the object of their faith is Jesus Christ. We talked earlier about how important the object of our faith is, not just that we have some blind, ambiguous faith. The circumstance is the same as their love for him. The circumstance for their believing is the same. They haven't seen him. They still don't see him. They're not seeing him now. And so they love and believe in an unseen Christ. And again, this is a present tense verb. You are believing in him. So what's the result of this? This is the second point of our lesson this afternoon. Uh, The reality is that we love him, though we've not seen him. We believe in him, though we don't see him now. What's the result of all of that? Well, you find that in the end of verse 8. Uh, it says that we, we have this joy that is inexpressible. Uh, we ask the question, what grows out of this love and faith? Two things are produced 
from this. An inexpressible joy, right? Well, see, that's the first thing. An inexpressible joy. Look at verse 8. And we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Uh, the, those two, if you will look at your, your text, rejoice with joy. It looks like this could be the same word, right? Because the same, but there are two different words. Um, that word for joy is a word, is a, the noun is kara. It's a different word. We'll talk about that word rejoice in a second. That's the same rejoice as you saw back in verse 6. If you look back in 1 Peter 1 and verse 6, it says, in this you rejoice. Same word. And the writers of the translators of my version, which is the ESV, use that same word, rejoice, to translate that same Greek word. Um, it's a word for an abundant rejoicing. If you have a New American Standard Bible in front of you, you probably are reading the words greatly rejoice. That's the idea. It's actually a compound word. It's, it's angaliao, uh, which is the root verb. And it comes from two words, agon, which means much, and halamai, which doesn't mean joy. It means jumping. It means jumping. It means much jumping. So when it, you look in verse 8 and it says, we rejoice with joy inexpressible, it says we, and it says, and they, there's much jumping with joy that is inexpressible. It's that same word, that word for rejoice, there's the same word that's used back in uh, Acts chapter 3. Remember we talked about John and Peter healing the lame man in front of the tabernacle. Uh, where they had, they had come to, uh, to worship, he was there to get money. And Peter said, of course, silver and gold have I none, such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He gets up, and what happens? He gets up and he walks, and what? He's leaping, okay? That's the word. That's the same word for this word rejoice. He is jumping for joy over all that has taken place. And it's inexpressible. And that word is only used here in our New Testament. It's not used in any other place. Um, and, it's, and there's a little bit of a controversy. If you, <laughs> if you read some of these commentators, there's always, there's always a debate on what they exactly mean. It could mean that there's just not language. We don't have words for it. Or it could mean that we don't know how to put words together for it. Uh, in either way, it, 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 it seems to be that there's, there's no way to find an expression in words of how joy how joy-filled they are at this. And, and when, you, when you think of this, folks, it really it, it makes sense, doesn't it? That they would be so joyful over what it had taken place for them. It's inexpressible and it's glorious. It's a glorious feeling. It's this, this, um, this rejoicing with joy that's inexpressible and it's also filled with glory. It is filled with glory. It's a joy that radiates with the glory of the God of heaven. Of that root word, doxadzo. You might hear that. You can hear the word doxology in that word. And when we come together and we sing a doxology to God, we're singing a praise, a joy-filled praise to God for His glory. That's this word. That's the kind of a joy that we have. It's filled with this kind of inexpressible, glorious character. And the outward circumstances have nothing to do with this. It doesn't matter. That's why it's inexpressible. Because you can't put into words, when you are going through any kind of a trial, and I'm looking into faces, and I, every one of you here has a story. Every one of you here, if you've walked with the Lord any length of time, every one of you here could stand and testify to 
to times when you were in the midst of trials or difficulties of some kind and these are the things that sustained you. The not seeing Christ but loving him. The believing in him. And there is something in you, there is a joy that's just inexpressible. And it's glorious. And it doesn't matter where you've been. Outward circumstances mean nothing to this. It's all about what Christ is in the heart. We don't look to the outward circumstances, but they rejoice in all of this. And again, when you think about it, why wouldn't they? They've been raised from the dead. If you'll go back to 1 Peter and begin reading in verse 3 again, you find these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. These people remembered. And Peter is bringing to their minds again that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. They had no hope. They were trapped and they had no hope. And unless somebody else brought them out, they would not have anything. They would have no hope. That's why there's a joy that's inexpressible. That's why it's so wonderful. That's why it's so glorious. Because we have no hope. But God in his mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see all, those lang- all that language of death and raising, death and raising. We were dead, had dead, stony, cold hearts. And he, God looked out on the quarry of humanity, all these dead stones, and he would touch this one and touch this one and touch this one, give it life, give it life, give it life. If you continue reading in Peter's letters, you read that we are living stones built up in this tabernacle as a dwelling place for God. And so God dwells with his people. And of course we call that what the, uh, the Jehovah principle where God is our God and we are his people. We, you can read that, you'll read that language all through the Old Testament and the New Testament until you get to the book of Revelation where in that final place he is our God and we are his people. So uh, we have this inexpressible joy that's filled with glory and then lastly we have this and um, an obtained salvation, verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith. And by the way, I told you there'd be four times, four times in five verses. Four times in five verses, Peter references faith, 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 faith. You think it's important? Faith is important. Faith alone. The fourth time in five verses, having uh, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is what? The salvation of your souls. That obtaining, kalambao, just simply means a re- it's a reference to receiving something, a continually receiving of something, uh, to receive what is promised. And let me give you another passage where it's used. You don't need to turn. But in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 35 and 36, you find these words, Therefore, we do not throw... Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. That word received, same word as the word obtaining in our verse in 1 Peter 1.9. This is the result of 
loving Christ, believing in Christ, although we have not seen him, we obtain from that a joy that cannot be expressed. It is a glorious joy. And we obtain, we receive this outcome of our faith, which is the salvation, that that eternal salvation of our souls, the the ultimate salvation of our souls. Uh, Salvation here, of course, referring to the spiritual and eternal salvation, referring to that blessed condition which God appointed for his people from all eternity. Not just future, but currently. So we have a little bit of a foretaste of that. What's the old hymn? Uh, uh, We have a foretaste of glory divine, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And so what we experience here with, with, with one another in a place like this, when we pray, when we hear the word, when we offer up our spiritual sacrifices to God, when we sing the hymns, we sing the psalms, this is a foretaste. This is a small touch of what it will be like forever and ever. That's salvation of our souls. Um, So therefore, the redemption of these souls is precious. It requires a great price and for which a great price has been paid. You're there in 1 Peter 1. Let me ask you to look at one more passage and if you will let your eyes go down to verses 18 and 19. And we see here this wonderful price for our deliverance. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we have this deliverance. We have been delivered from sin. We have been delivered from that power. There's been a radical break with that sin. It is not our master anymore. Yes, we still carry around that old fleshly nature and we fight against sin every day, but it does no longer have the upper hand in mastery. We are in Christ. And so the result of all of this, the result of our faith in Christ, the result of our love to Christ, is that we experience this joy that is a leaping joy, inexpressible in words, glorious, full of glory, and the obtaining of the, the, the result of our faith And that is that salvation ready to be revealed, as Peter says, in the last time. Let's pray together, please. Our Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for that wonderful salvation which is ours in Christ Jesus. We thank you for these epistles that we may read, these general letters that went out to numerous assemblies, those who are dispersed from place to place under persecution. And Peter, the one who was told by Christ Jesus that he would betray him, but then when he has been converted, when he has turned, that he would then strengthen his brothers. And we see in these letters the very fulfillment of those words where he now strengthens his brothers in this area of faith that they would not lose faith as he did that night and betray his Lord. But he urges them and he commends them in that they had not seen Christ. They still love him and believe him. And the result of that would be a glorious joy, inexpressible, 
and that they would receive the outcome, the result of that faith, the salvation of their souls. We pray, O Father, that you might minister to every heart here today. May we hear these words, know these words, and may we not go forth from this place deceiving our own selves by being hearers only. But may we go forth from this place as doers of the word, demonstrating a living faith. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.